Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. The sermon text for this evening is from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived child by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The word of the Lord. So the greatest moment in the history of technical difficulties, my first full summer as a camp pastor, all my buddies were up on the stage doing a skit. And while they were doing the skit, all of a sudden one of the guys, Mike, started having problems. It was just like, like that. And he goes, excuse me. <laughs> it was like the, the best response I've ever heard in my entire life. So that's technical difficulties 101. If you ever have that happen, just say excuse me and see what happens. We're in Romans chapter 9 tonight, verses 1 through 13, and this is one of the most important and most controversial passages in the entire Bible, and I'm going to do my best to treat it with care and precision, but I know that like everybody else who's ever taught it, I'm sure to err at some point. So we're going we're gonna to look at this verse by verse, but really we're going to look at it paragraph by paragraph, and What's happening here is that Paul is feeling this very human emotion known as disappointment. And he's feeling it in a really strong way. This is why I had Kurt read from Exodus 33 because it seems like when Paul writes this passage, he's been reading from the book of Exodus because he makes these references to Moses and especially as we read these first few verses it kind of reminds me of Moses in Exodus 33 doesn't it where Moses is like look Lord if you're not going to save all these people then let me be a curse too 
And, and Paul seems like he's been reading Moses and he's thinking, I could almost pray that same prayer because I'm so devastated at the state of affairs as it regards my kinsmen according to the flesh, the nation of Israel, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm devastated as I look at what's happening with the people of Israel. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And the reason that Paul feels this way is because his kinsmen, the people of Israel, are by and large rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, the same Jesus Christ who has come in fulfillment of the covenants God made with the people of Israel. So Paul has this double disappointment. He's not only disappointed about the way things are shaping up for Israel, but he has to wrestle with this disappointment in God. God, what are you doing? I thought, I thought you were going to save the people of Israel. I thought the people of Israel were special. I thought the people of Israel were set aside. I thought the people of Israel were supposed to be the recipients of your blessing. And he's wrestling with this. He's genuinely in anguish as he thinks about what's going on here. And so in 1 through 13 of this passage, Paul's going to lay the groundwork for what he's going to deal with in all of chapters 9 through 11. And chapters 9 through 11 is going to be Paul's answer to this question, what is going on with Israel? What's the deal? And here in verses 1 through 13, he's going to lay the groundwork for that by addressing the question behind the question, the question that undergirds the rest. And here's the question that Paul's dealing with here, it appears. Why are some people in Israel being saved while most are not? In other words, why are most of those considered Israel not being saved, not putting their faith in the gospel? What's going on with Israel? So to understand this question, we're going to have to do a little bit of theology, but before we do that, I want to dig right in here to verses 1 through 5. And we just read verses 1 and 2 and 3, so here we're going to see in verse 4 that they are Israelites, and to So right here in verses 1 through 5, we're going to get Paul's first point as he deals with this question, what is going on with Israel? And the first thing that he wants us to see is that Israel is indeed special. 
Israel is indeed special. Look at verses 1 through 5. He says in verse 4 there, Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So he lays out all these ways that Israel is, in fact, special. And we're going to look at these one by one. The first thing is Israel has the adoption. Israel has the adoption. And what this refers to is all the Old Testament texts that refer to Israel as God's children. This happens over and over again. And just like those of us who are adopted in Christ, Israel has to be adopted. They're not God's son in the same way that Jesus is God's son. But by adoption... They belong to God. So they have the adoption. Number two, they have the covenants. And anybody that goes to this church should have heard the word covenant by now. These are the stories around which we frame our entire theological vision as a church. Creation. Abraham. Israel. King David. Exile or the anticipation of the new covenant. And Jesus or the fulfillment of the new covenant. These covenants belong to Israel. They're part of their history. They are the moments that define their relationship with God. The covenants belong to them. The law belongs to them. And then Paul says the service belongs to them. This is the temple service. And then the promises of God belong to them. And now the fathers belong to them. The fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the fathers of the faith, belong to the people of Israel. So there's something really special about Israel. And then he says that according to the flesh, theirs is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Israel really is special. But then Paul wants to point out in verses 6 through 13 that God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and he's going to make this point through a few, different, a few different stories that he wants to kind of get across, and he wants to highlight to demonstrate what's going on specifically with Israel. And the first thing he's going to say in verse 6 is that it is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, this is going to depend on how you understand the way the Bible fits together. And there are two big schools of thought on how the Bible fits together. And each of those has two or three little sub-tribes, right, that are even smaller groups of people that think the same way. But I'm just going to break it down, first of all, into dispensationalism. Everybody say that with me. Dispensationalism. Uh, short for a way to shorten that is just wrong, right? No, I'm just kidding. And then we have covenantalism on this side, okay? Dispensationalism, covenantalism. The farther you go this direction, dispensationalism, the more you believe that the Old Testament and the New Testament have a big gap between them. In other words, they're, they have a discontinuity. God changes things between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the basic idea is that God did things one way in the Old Testament. He had a certain covenant with Israel. 
but that is now completely forgotten about and we have a new covenant that's completely different with the people who believe in Jesus in the New Testament. So big gap, discontinuity. But the farther you go on the covenantal side, the more you see continuity in the sense that God has always done things the same way. God has one covenant that is renewed over and over again. And there's continuity in how people are saved in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you have classic dispensationalism. That's like the wrongest you could possibly be. Then you have revised dispensationalism, a little less wrong. Then you have progressive dispensationalism, like barely wrong. Then you have progressive covenantalism, which is the dead center truth, right? And then you have covenant theology, and then you have Christian reconstructionism. Christian reconstructionism basically is like, we want to have the whole law be the way that the government is organized, right? So that's, we're getting way over into continuity. Every single thing you see in the Old Testament, let's literalize it and put it in place right now. You with me? Dispensationalism, covenantalism. So here's the thing. For the word to not be not, in other words, for the word to not have failed, we have to take a certain view of this thing. And Paul's now going to articulate how we need to look at this if it's going to be the case that the word has not failed. Because remember, here's what we're looking at. God has made promises to Abraham, right? God has dealt with favor with Israel all throughout the Old Testament. But now Jesus has come. The gospel is being preached. Gentiles are responding like crazy. But the kinsmen, according to the flesh, are mostly rejecting the gospel. Are, are you feeling this? Do you see this? Think about the United States, for example. Right now, the church is in massive decline in the United States and in most of the Western world. But in the Southern Hemisphere, what we see in the global South, missionaries call it, we see the church on the rise. People are coming to Christ in droves, and Christianity is growing and flourishing in those places. So it, it's kind of a similar thing, except for instead of a geographical difference, what we see is an ethnic difference between the people who belong to Israel by the flesh and the Gentiles. So people belong to Israel or not believe in the gospel, the Gentiles are. That's the basic thing. Of course, some Jewish people are believing the gospel, but not very many. So Paul now is going to try to explain why this is happening. So first, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Now he's going to tell us how this can be the case. How can it be the case that the word of God has not failed? It sure looks like it, right? It sure looks like the people of Israel are not enjoying God's blessing. They're not part of this new covenant. So he says, here's his answer. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You see that? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, God's promise to Abraham is not based on physical descent. 
In other words, you do not receive personal salvation on the basis of your genealogy. That is not the case now, and it was never the case even in the Old Testament. Personal eschatological salvation is not part of God's promises to Israel. Everybody follow? Personal eschatological salvation is not entailed in God's promises to Israel. He makes corporate promises, but those promises have to do with God's treatment of the nation of Israel on a temporal, earthly level. But God's promises of salvation are always enacted from beginning to end on the basis of faith. And so Paul says not every single person who has the right genealogy is actually part of God's chosen people. So there's two Israels. There's Israel according to the flesh, and then there's the true Israel, those who have faith in God's coming Messiah, or in this case, the Messiah who has now come. So God's word hasn't failed at all, and Paul's making the point, look, nothing's actually changed. Nothing has changed. Salvation is still by faith in the coming Messiah. And those who have that faith are still part of Israel. So God's promise to Abraham was not based on physical descent. And he proves this by pointing to, to Isaac and Ishmael. He says, look, we can see just by looking at Abraham's children. We have two children that are from Abraham's flesh, but only one of them is actually true Israel. And then he goes on, and he, he, he wants to show us that God's purpose is absolutely steadfast. God's purpose is absolutely steadfast. Look at what he says. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. At about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So what we see here is that God's election is sure. And Paul now is applying the sovereignty of God and salvation to our lives. And he chooses this particular pair for a very particular reason, I think. Now we look at Romans 9 through 11. And, and we're tempted to think that this whole thing is about the nation of Israel as a whole, this corporate nation as a whole. But remember the question that Paul's answering here. He's not answering the question, what is God doing with Israel as a whole? He's answering a more specific question, why are so many people who belong to Israel not receiving personal salvation? You see that? Paul's not asking the question, what's happening to God's promise to the nation? That nation promise is still intact. God's still upholding his promises to Israel. 
But he's asking a more specific question. Why are so many people who are part of Israel in the flesh not receiving personal salvation by faith in the gospel? And he chooses this pair, Jacob and Esau, to illustrate what is happening here. So he's not trying to explain something about Israel as a whole, but instead he's trying to explain something about particular members of Israel. How is it that these people are not receiving salvation, personal salvation? And the points that Paul wants to make here are these. First of all, I think we can see that election is free. And we're going to unpack this a little bit as we move forward, but God is 100% free. If we were to rate the freedom of every being in the universe, how much, how much freedom do they enjoy? God enjoys more freedom than any other being in the entire universe. He's 100% uninhibited in every way. There's nothing outside of God that inhibits God. God is only inhibited by his own desires, by his own character, by his own good pleasure. Isn't that amazing? Nothing can inhibit God outside of God's self. So God is free. Here's the next thing. God's election, not only is it free, but it's particular. It's particular. We see that God, for some reason, we don't know what the reason is. We have no idea what drives God's purposes in election. But he chose Jacob, and he didn't choose Esau. And Paul wants to use this to illustrate why are some members of the nation of Israel responding with faith to the gospel while others are not. And Paul answers, because God is free, and God freely chooses on whom he's going to bestow salvation. But the last thing that I think we need to pick up from this is that election is reassuring. It's reassuring because we can trust that the God who begins our salvation, which was Paul's point at the end of chapter 8, is the God who's going to complete our salvation. And we discover in ourselves true faith in Jesus Christ, when we discover in ourselves true faith in what God has accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son, then we also discover in ourselves the evidence that God is at work in us to bring us to completed salvation. In other words, just as Paul says, the God who begins our salvation in Philippians is the God who will complete our salvation. So it brings us reassurance. And we're going to look over the course of the next few weeks at exactly how this plays out and exactly how this relates to the nation of Israel and how it relates to our own way of entering into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But the important thing here is that the reason that some people in Israel do not respond to the gospel and other people in Israel do respond to the gospel is because God is free in his electing work. Now, this is, this is a profound mystery, isn't it? How many of you find that troubling at all? Anybody find it troubling? I find it troubling, you know. I've always found it troubling. But what we have to do when we find things in the text that are troubling Number one, allow yourself to be troubled. It's okay. It's all right to be. God's big enough. God's wise enough. God's powerful enough to withstand our being troubled. And, and articulate to God that you're troubled. God, I, I'm, I'm troubled by this. I don't understand it. But number two, surrender to the mystery. 
surrender to it. Look, here's the deal. How many of you believe that you are a real person? Anybody? How many of you believe that you're a real person? I believe I'm a real person. It, it takes faith to believe that you're a real person. Doesn't it? Look, if you were not a real person, if you were just, uh, you were just plugged into a machine somewhere, right, and somebody's having dreams that you're a real person, how would you know the difference? If, if you're just imagining that you're a real person, how would you know the difference? How many of you have had dreams that seemed real? We can't prove that we're actually here in the flesh living a real and meaningful life. We just, we believe it. We take it for granted, right? So look, if, if we believe that, what does that mean? It means that we believe in a God who's not running a long con on us. It means we believe in a God who's not running a long con on us. He's not deceiving us. But we live in a world where 2 plus 2 is 4. We live in a world where floors are solid. We live in a world where we can trust our senses. We can trust our perception to tell us the truth. So check this out. How many of you believe that you make real choices in your day-to-day -day life? Anybody? And how many of you perceive that you exercise real agency in placing your faith in Jesus Christ? Just your perception. Do you perceive that? I perceive it. So the same way that we trust that we're real, the same way we trust that we're not going to fall through the imaginary floor when we step onto it, we can trust that our perception is reality. Right? So what we have, we have this revealed word from God that tells us that God exercises free election in choosing who will respond to the gospel. And then we have our experience in the world that shows us that we're exercising real agency. So here's what we have to do. We have to surrender to the mystery. Theologians get in tons of trouble when they try to mitigate the mystery. They try to solve it. Are you with me? They take the puzzle and, man, they just stay up all night long trying to push it all together, try to figure God out. Here's, here's the thing. If I could figure God out, why would I want to worship him? How can I worship a God who's small enough to fit within my comprehension? How can I stand in awe of a God who's simple enough for me to explain? So we should expect that when we understand as much as we can about God and how he acts in the world, that we're going to run up against mysteries that we can't dispel. We're going to run up against confusing things that we can't completely figure out or explain away. And so I, I hold with deep faith to this truth that Paul articulates in Romans chapter 9. God freely elects his people. And I hold with 100% confidence that I also make real free choices in my life. How do those fit together? I have no idea. In the same way that I look at the scientific evidence, and it's very clear to me that the scientific evidence seems to show that we live in a very old world. But then I read Genesis chapter 1 through 11, and it seems to me that the revealed word of God shows us that humans arose somewhere between six and 11,000 years ago. And I'm perfectly content to say this is what science says, 
This is what the Bible says. I believe the Bible, and I believe that these two will eventually be shown to be the same. I don't know how that's the case. Either I've misunderstood one, or we haven't quite figured out the other. But they're going to come together, and God's word will be shown to be true. And I'm happy to uphold that mystery because I already start with the assumption that I worship a God I cannot completely understand. So, what's our response to all this stuff? First thing is this. We've got to repent of pride. We've got to repent of pride because two reasons. Number one, we can't understand everything about God. That's the one I just talked about. But here's the other thing. If it's true that God freely elects us, then, man, we, we shouldn't congratulate ourselves for our great intelligence or our great wisdom in choosing to follow the one true way. This is a gift. That's humbling, isn't it? The credit goes to God. Especially those of you who came to faith in Jesus as an adult probably can testify to feeling the pursuit of God in your life. Spoken to people who felt God's pursuit. You could sense that God was the one in charge of this, this ride. So we can repent of our pride. We can rejoice in grace. And it's by God's deep grace that we're part of his family. J.I. Packer called election the family secret of the church. It's the family secret of the church where we're just so elated that God is chosen to open our eyes so that we could believe the gospel it's our family secret so we can rejoice in that grace and finally this is the best part of anything that's a gift we can give thanks we can give thanks god thank you not just for saving me but thank you god for opening my eyes so that i could believe the gospel Thank you, God, for making me able to understand and comprehend the truth of what Jesus has accomplished on my behalf. Thank you, God, for setting me apart from before the foundation of the world that I should belong to you as your adopted son or daughter. Thank you, God, that before, before you spoke the world into existence, the lamb was slain and he secured my individual particular salvation. Thank you, God, that you chose to create a world in which I am counted among the elect. Did you catch that? Thank you, God, that you chose to create a world in which I am counted among the elect. So give thanks. And here's the final thing. Hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. Check this out. The people in your life the people in your life who are rejecting the gospel, the people in your life who are running from the gospel, the people in your life who are, who are failing to believe in Jesus, the people in your life who refuse to trust in God, listen, they are not sovereign. They are not sovereign. And we can hope, we can even check this out, we can ruthlessly suspect that everyone in our lives may be part of God's elect. And what does that do? That fuels us with confidence to share the gospel. It fuels us with confidence to speak the gospel with clarity and boldness because we're not in charge of salvation, number one. So we don't have to worry about messing it up. But check this out. Neither are they, right? If God can turn the hearts of kings, he can turn the hearts of your friends and neighbors. 
So repent of pride, rejoice in grace, give thanks for your faith, and hold on to hope because you never know how God is at work in those for whom you pray day and night without ceasing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that, that your word is clear even when we cannot get clear about it. God, thank you that there are great mysteries to be perceived in your word, mysteries that we cannot and should not dispel. God, thank you that we can trust in your sovereignty while also trusting that we're not living a life of deception where we are only imagining ourselves to make real choices. God, thank you that in the same way that we can trust that 2 plus 2 is 4, we can trust that when we make decisions and when we act with agency that, that we're perceiving reality as it really is. God, help us to stand in awe of that mystery. Help us to worship you as we look to a God that we can never comprehend. We love you and we trust you. We thank you for creating a world where we're counted among the elect. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.